Welcome to this podcast, which is produced for the Norwegian Youth Atlantic Treaty Association's annual Nordic Security Conference, which this year dealt with the Arab Spring a decade later. Today's topic is internet activism in the Middle East and Northern Africa. My name is Matea Rane Nilsen, and with me today is Jon Nordensson. Welcome, Jon. You have the honor of being the very first guest to this podcast and hopefully one of the few forced to do this interview via Skype. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me. Jon Nordensson is currently working as a country advisor with the Norwegian Country of Origin Information Center and has previously held several research and teaching positions at the University of Oslo, where his focus has been on activism and the Arab Spring. He has a PhD from the same university and wrote his dissertation on online activism in Egypt and Kuwait. Okay, so you, you're here today to talk about online activism in the Middle East and Northern Africa. And I think I'll just jump right into it. So my first question to you is, could the Arab Spring have happened without the internet? That's uh, that's a very good question. It's it's uh, quite a big question as well. I think the short answer is uh, perhaps, but then it would have looked quite differently. Uh, the internet or, or various online platforms uh, solved a lot of problems for activists and for those taking part in the protests in the region. Uh, they made possible things that would otherwise have been very difficult, very expensive, and, and perhaps also impossible. Then again, uh, I, I think it's important to stress that uh, online platforms didn't weren't equally as important in all countries, and they were used in different ways in different countries uh, for, for various reasons. Perhaps most of all because access to the internet uh, was very unevenly distributed in the region in 2011. You had countries like uh, Kuwait, which witnessed large protests, where, where a clear majority of the population were online in 2011 and used online platforms. But then you had countries like Yemen uh, and Libya, where a very small portion of the population actually made use of, of online platforms in 2011, uh, maybe 10% or less. And then, of course, internet can't really play the same role as in a country where 80% of the population are online. So, we, so if, I mean, if, if most people are online, you could use online platforms quite effectively for mobilization, for instance, and to spread information about what's going on. In countries where most people are not online, you can't really do that in the same way. That doesn't mean that online platforms aren't important. You can still spread information to, to activists who can then share this information in offline networks, for instance. And you can use online platforms to document what's going on, to sort of share with the uh, outside world what's happening, uh, the extent of the protest, perhaps the extent of the violent repression with which the regimes meet the protests, and so on. So it can still be very important, but it, it, it's important in different ways. How would you characterize activism before the rise of the internet? I think the super short answer would be uh, repressed and or co-opted in, in many countries. If you look at Egypt, which is often seen as the country where perhaps the most important country in terms of the growth of activism and not least online activism in the late 90s and the early 2000s. Now, before that, uh, the regime of Hosni Mubarak uh, used various tactics to sort of control civil society and, and the political sphere. You did have political parties and you also had civil society organizations, 
But the regime had various laws, often vaguely formulated, that, that they could use to, to strike down on these organizations whenever they wanted to. So they, they could, for instance, interfere in the election of boards of civil society organizations and, and so on. And then they used outright repression. The Muslim Brotherhood, which was the largest oppositional movement in Egypt at the time, uh, you had, I mean, it, it varied a bit over time, but, but uh, in some instances, the regime struck down hard on the movement and arrested lots of leaders and members and so on. And then you had other organizations that were uh, sort of incentivized to be a uh, loyal opposition uh, towards the regime that, that gained access to resources and, and so on if they weren't too, too critical. At the same time, at least in the 80s, it started to change uh, a lot in the 90s. Uh, the regime had uh, or were able to quite tightly control the media as well. You had censorship and you had uh, you know, state television, state newspapers and so on that, that wrote whatever the regime wanted them to write. So, so they had quite a good control and were able to, to control both media and, and civil society. That doesn't mean that there wasn't any political opposition, of course. I mean, it was, it certainly was. But it was very difficult uh, for oppositional organizations and movements. And not least, it was very difficult for young people to take part in these, these groups. In addition to being you know, repressive political, uh, to, to living under repressive political regimes, these were also quite patriarchal societies where young people weren't really expected to or given the opportunity to take part in the same manner as, as older men predominantly. Mm. And then came the Arab Spring. Now, you've mentioned that the way online platforms were utilized differed across the region. But what would you say were the main characteristics of online activism during the spring? Well, but there are some, some things or some, some functions that uh, online platforms fulfilled for activists that we can identify. I, I should say that there, there was a, quite a development between you know, this offline uh, organization in the late 80s, 90s, and then... Uh, you had the Arab Spring in 2011. Quite a lot happened between there. So you had a gradual development of, of the use of online platforms among activists. But then when the, the protests came, they, they were used for, for different purposes. They were used for planning and organization. Uh, this varied a bit between countries. I mean, in Tunisia, uh, the protests were a spontaneous protest as an answer to, to something that happened in, in the city of Sidi Bouzid. But in Egypt, the protests had been planned for quite a long time, since the, the autumn of 2010, and he used various online platforms to sort of reach out to activists, to activist groups and so on, and to discuss what, what, what they were going to do when they started the protests. It was used for mobilization, often in combination with other uh, offline networks as well. Uh, in, in the literature on online activism, there's also often talk of so, uh, what, what you call power users, Influential users, users that have many followers online, but who are often also part of important offline networks. So they can sort of reach each other online and then spread the information further to, to other networks as well. And in Egypt, they combined online and offline mobilization for the first protests in, in, on January 25th. It was used to document what was going on, uh, both the extent of the protests. I mean, regime media in, in various countries would say that, well, there aren't really anything happening, there aren't big, any big demonstrations and so on. But then you can see videos on YouTube showing that there are tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people out in the street. And of course, to document how the regime responded. In most countries, the regime responded with violence. I mean, brutal violence in, in many countries and, and, and the regime would deny this, but, but, uh, Activists filming what was happening, taking pictures and so on, and then publishing it online document that this was actually happening. An important point here is also the connection between old and new media. 
so to speak, that uh, journalists uh, working in, in newspapers, television and so on, often had close connections to activists. This developed in Egypt uh, during the 2000s, but, but you also had international journalists following uh, famous activists, uh, what we referred to earlier as power users. And then we're able to, to sort of catch up on what was happening, to find videos, to find content and so on. And this was often published in the traditional media as well. I mean, on the first night of protests in, in Tunisia in December 2010, videos of what was happening was, published, was uh, broadcasted by Al Jazeera. So this connection between new and old media was important from the beginning. And when you get videos and so on published uh, or broadcasted by, by satellite television, of course, you reached a much, much broader audience than what anyone would be able to do, do online. Then, of course, discussions and debates uh, was an important part of it as well. Uh, both before the protest, to sort of discuss what kind of changes do we want, is, is, is change possible? Uh, what kind of uh, Egypt or Tunisia would we like to see in the future? How can we achieve change? How should we organize? What should be our demands? And so on. But also, as, as the protest took place, how should we respond to these different things? Uh, there were connections across borders with activists in Tunisia, Egypt, and so on, uh, talking to each other, sharing tips, how to deal with uh, riot police, how to deal with tear gas, what kind of slogans to use, what kind of songs to use, the imagery that was used during the protests, and so on. So I, I would say that these, these features uh, were the most important. Planning, uh, mobilization, documentation, or, or citizen journalism, as it often is referred to. And then these uh, political debates and, and discussions that took place. And how would you say the situation has developed since 2011? Social media platforms, anonymous online forums, are they as important today as they were back then? Well, uh, more people use them today. You have more people being uh, more people are online in the Arab world today than in 2011, and more people make use of social media platforms as well. Not necessarily the same platforms. Twitter, for instance, which was seen as very important in 2011, is is sort of becoming less important, perhaps in some countries. Then again, Twitter was never the most used platform in any country, and and perhaps was most of all important for these famous activists to reach out to the outside world, with some exceptions. But more people are using uh, social media today, so so that should you know tell us that they they could probably be more important. Moreover, uh, the same problems that caused the protests in 2011, very high youth unemployment, uh, corrupt regimes that weren't able to solve the problems of the population and perhaps creating new problems uh, more than anything, uh, well-educated young population that weren't able to find jobs or meaningful jobs, weren't able to start their lives as they wanted to, these problems are still there. I mean, youth unemployment in Egypt is higher today than it was in 2011. And so on. So this should also you know, be an argument for continued protest. And, and of course, protests do take place in some places. But uh, on the other hand, the regimes have adapted uh, to what was happening in 2011. Repression has increased offline. It's more difficult to hold offline protests in many countries that witnessed protests in 2011. Today, uh, in Egypt, for instance, following the coup in the summer of 2013, it's, it's extremely difficult and dangerous to hold any offline protests. And in, in most countries, online protests or online activism will only take you so far. It, it's connected to what takes place offline as well. So without offline protests, it will be difficult to achieve much. And when offline protest is, is almost impossible, then 
I mean, not that much happens. Moreover, the regimes have become more adapted or, or more skilled at, at striking down on opposition online as well. Uh, you have some regimes that have, uh, Saudi Arabia is perhaps the most famous example, having developed these uh, Twitter armies that many refer to, that try to influence or perhaps manipulate uh, discourse on politics in the country and in the region as well. And the regimes have been quite adapted at online surveillance and, and tracking down people who work, uh, do oppositional work online. Still, uh, online activism still takes place in, in many countries. People still discuss politics. People still document what's going on. Even in a country like Egypt, you have activists that write online about uh, the oppression of the regime, about uh, political activists being jailed and so on, and what they experience in jail, not least. Uh, so, so this still takes place. And you've had new platforms that has been uh, quite popular. Clubhouse, for instance, has been hugely popular in the Middle East as a forum for, for political discussions or discussions on social issues that traditionally has been as seen as taboo. So you had, it, it's been extremely popular, especially in the Gulf countries, perhaps, and Iraq, where you had lots of, of political discussions online. So it's, I, I think it's difficult to say. At, at the moment, some other countries that saw protests in 2011 uh, has, has seen a sort of return of the authoritarian regimes and they're able to control the situation for the moment at least and it's more difficult for actors to work. Other countries that didn't see protests in 2011 have since seen protests like Iraq and Lebanon, Algeria, Sudan. At the moment this is on hold so to speak due to the COVID pandemic but, but I think there's every reason to believe that this will return especially in Iraq and Lebanon once the, the, the COVID situation gets better. And I think for the other countries as well the current situation is untenable, in a sense, with the regimes not really being able to solve the problems of the population. People experience that their, their own situation isn't really getting any better. Uh, they may be discouraged at the moment from protesting uh, due to regime repression. And also, of course, seeing what happened in countries like Syria and Yemen and Libya. But in the long run, uh, I don't think it's, it's tenable. And I think you'll see protests in, in many countries in the future, and then online platforms will play an important part. You mentioned the current pandemic, and that's something that's fairly difficult to tiptoe around these days. And now, apart from what you've already mentioned, I'm wondering how the COVID pandemic has influenced activism in the region so far, in terms of both public resistance and government efforts. What are your thoughts on this? Um, it's a good good question. I think uh, in, in some countries, the government at least has tried to control information concerning the pandemic. In Egypt, for instance, uh, there's you, sometimes you come across discussions uh, on online on platforms about how the situation actually is quite a lot worse than what, what the regime is, is stating uh, publicly. Uh, which is then often met with reactions from the regime. Uh, and you have had doctors that have been arrested uh, because they've spoken um, openly about, about the situation in the country. So, so that's one thing. And then, of course, the COVID pandemic has, has contributed to the deteriorating situation in, in some countries, economically and, and socially. Lebanon is, is falling apart these days. Uh, Iraq is experiencing a, a very difficult situation. And and, and the protest movement that began in Iraq in 2019 and then sort of uh, died out due to the pandemic, it, it started again. 
um, not not on the same scale, but there are regular protests in lots of cities in, in Iraq. And you do have regular protests in Lebanon as well. Uh, I've seen some people refer to small protests in, in Algeria as well. So, so they might perhaps be beginning later on. But then I suppose some of the changes that the pandemic that, that we've experienced from the pandemic, not being able to meet each other, being uh, having to talk more online and, and sort of organize the way one works in a different way. I guess that that could have an, an impact in, in the Middle East as well. But how online activism is done is at least before it's been shaped by by the regimes and by the political context within which they work. And I think that's that's in many cases more or less the same today. And, and it will be the same in the foreseeable future as well. Or, or they will still have to deal with these regimes and with restrictions on political activism and, and on, on protests and demonstration and political participation uh, in these countries. So, so in that sense, it won't change that much perhaps. But then again, you have new popular platforms like Clubhouse where you had many discussions uh, that perhaps, at least in some countries, could have been held offline earlier that are, are held online now. Mm. I think that that probably won't disappear when, when the COVID situation gets better. People will still continue to use these platforms. So, so, so it might uh, shape habits, I suppose. But, but the main constraint, the main uh, challenge for activists in these countries are the political context, the repressive political context, more than anything else, I think. Mm. I'd also like to pick up on something you said earlier about how governments have adapted over the last few years. There's another phenomena, so to speak, that has greatly affected North Africa and the Middle East, which is the war on terror. And with it, the West increasingly interested in collaborating with local governments in order to map out and con control terrorist cells. How would you say that this has influenced internet activism or the government's methods to um, deal with internet activism, if it has? Yeah, I think uh, several points to be made in a sense. Uh, in, in the early days of the protests in 2011, uh, the view on social media perhaps became a bit romanticized in, in public discourses and, and in, not least in Western media that these were platforms of liberation, that they would help bring democracy, uh, and they sort of were seen as inherently good, mm. which which they aren't really. Uh, the internet, I mean, the internet isn't one thing or the other. The internet is, however, it's used by those who make use of it, and the same goes for platforms. So these social media platforms can be used uh, by people with you know all kinds of different goals and aims, and terrorist organizations have made very effective use of, of many platforms and and then, of course, you have had uh, intelligence services and you had the, the companies behind the platforms themselves trying to, to deal with this and had sort of ongoing uh, war between Facebook, for instance, and groups with Facebook attempting to, to sort out this kind of content and then extremist organizations adapting and trying to get around uh, censorship or the blocks that, that Facebook set up and so on. So... I think since 2011, we've sort of gotten a, a much-needed reality check uh, on how these platforms work. And, and, and part of this is also how the regimes employ them uh, to try to manipulate uh, public discourse, to try to surveil uh, activism and political discourse in a country, and, and so on. And sometimes uh, these sort of 
bot armies that attack particular activists uh, and so on online. So, so it's sort of shown us that it's, there's nothing inherently good about these platforms. They can be used for different goals and aims by, by many different actors, by pro-democracy activists, but also by extremist organizations or by repressive uh, regimes uh, adapting and trying to, to sort of turn the situation in their own favor. A different point here is that some of the regimes in the Middle East uh, use the term terrorist quite liberally. Uh, you've had uh, the regime that came to power following the coup in Egypt in 2013, labeling the Muslim Brotherhood, which were in power before the coup, as a terrorist organization. Uh, and, and sort of using this discourse uh, on, on the war on terror to strike down on what is essentially nonviolent political opposition as well. That's an important aspect to it as well. In terms of how cooperation between Western countries and, and regimes in the Middle East have uh, directly affected um, Online activism, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if I have a good answer to that, uh, uh, to be honest. But I think Western support uh, for these regimes, and not least the lack of reactions from the outside world on, on the repressive actions of these regimes, is a, a big problem for, for these activists. One of the things that's often seen as you know, important and, and one of the gains that activists get from using online platform is citizen journalism, being able to document what the regime does and then, then showing it to the outside world. But for that to actually have an effect, I mean, it, it depends on someone with the ability to do so doing something. And in the beginning, uh, when, when the uh, Mubarak's regime in Egypt reacted very violently to the protests, you had, you know, European countries, the US and so on, reacting quite clearly, saying that this violence is unacceptable. And after a few days, the U.S. government working to, to secure orderly transition and, and Mubarak leaving power. But in the years that followed, the outside world hasn't really reacted in the same way to, to what's been shown. I mean, we, we know very well what the Assad regime has done in, in Syria. It's, it's been thoroughly documented how they killed tens or hundreds of thousands of their own citizens, even using chemical weapons. We know how the regime in Egypt used violence following the coup in 2013. We know that tens of thousands of political prisoners are lingering in Egyptian prisons as we speak. But the outside world hasn't really reacted. So that the norms that thought were in place in 2011 doesn't really seem to be in place in the same way anymore. And then it becomes a lot less effective. And uh, so this, the outside world and, and other countries uh, their willingness to, to not really react to how these repressive regimes uh, deal with the protest movements in their own countries, that's, that's a huge problem. I see that we're running out of time, unfortunately, but I would like to ask you one final question. Do you have any predictions about the future? Or more specifically, are there any countries that we should be paying special attention to in the years to come? Yeah, that's uh, a bit of a difficult question, uh, I suppose. I, I think uh, in terms of protests, protests certainly will continue in Lebanon uh, as, 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 as the country is more or less unraveling and the political elite is unable or unwilling to do anything to, to secure anything but their own interests as, and as people, regular people's lives are getting more and more and more difficult by the day. Uh, you'll certainly see more protests in the future. In Iraq, I'm certain as well, you'll see more protests uh, in, in the quite near future. Uh, because there as well, you have a, a political elite that, that's very often enriching themselves um, you know, at, the, at the expense of, of the population. 
But in the wider region, I, I'm not sure if I'm able to, to point to any specific countries, but I think we'll see more protests in the years to come because these, these fundamental problems that were behind protests in 2011 haven't really been solved in most countries. You still have the majority of the population are young people. They're better educated than any generation before them. They have more access to, to information, to debates, uh, organization, and so on online than any generation before them. Yet they're excluded politically, socially, and economically in, in their own countries. And I, I don't think that's tenable uh, in, in the longer term. As long as these regimes aren't able to solve these fundamental problems, as long as they're seen uh, as corrupt regimes that enrich themselves at the expense of the population, uh, you'll see some kind of protest. It, it'll happen in waves, I suppose, and, and regimes through repression, uh, through the bad, bad examples from, from country or people seeing what happened in countries like Syria and Yemen that might discourage protests for periods of time. But I don't think it's tenable um, in the long run. And sometimes, uh, I think in public discourse uh, here as well, the, the extent to which these regimes themselves are drivers of instability is, is not really acknowledged, I think. Because through their policies, through not all regimes, there are big differences between the countries in the North Africa and the Middle East, but some of the regimes, through their policies, through enriching themselves, they, they actually exacerbate some of these problems that have led to protests and unrest uh, earlier. And I think yes, as long as they continue to do that, you'll, you'll see more protests in the future. And when we do see protests, they probably take different forms in different countries, but the online platforms will be important. Uh, in, in all countries, in different ways, perhaps, but they will be important in terms of mobilizing, in terms of documenting what's happening, in terms of keeping in touch with journalists uh, in other countries and so on. It, they will certainly play an important part. Are you hopeful about the outcomes of these protests? Is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Well, that's, that's, <laughs> that's also a difficult question. I think um, what we've seen uh, or what we saw in 2011 is that uh, online platforms and, and the, the way that these were organized, you know, these sort of leaderless uh, movements, that's very effective in, in many ways. It's very effective to mobilize broad parts of the population. It's very effective in terms of mobilizing across uh, ideological divides and, and so on. Social media are extremely useful in terms of gaining attention around an issue, you know, raising an issue to to uh, to be seen not only domestically but also internationally, to gain the attention of the world of what was happening uh, during the protests and and the wrongdoings of the regime and so and so on. But they're not as effective in terms of determining an outcome, as as we talked about earlier, citizen uh, journalism. You, you gain attention from others, but then. For that to really be effective, you, you depend on someone with the ability to do so, doing something. And, and it's a bit the same as well with these protests. They're able to, to raise the problems of the regime, to mobilize the population, uh, to, to agree on what they want to remove. Uh, but then it's, so far, it's been a problem to sort of agree on what, where you want to go from there. The exception, of course, being Tunisia. Lots of problems in Tunisia, by all means, but, but, but they're quite remarkable uh, and so far, quite successful transition towards democracy following ten, uh, decades of, of authoritarian rule. So, so it clearly can happen, uh, and then hopefully it will happen elsewhere as well. But, but these regimes are quite well entrenched, and and of course there are uh, also other parts of the population that have their interests tied to the regimes that are in power. So, so the protests are up against quite powerful. 
forces in, in the struggle for change. Mm. I guess we'll just have to wait and see what the next few years bring. Thank you very much for sitting down with me, Yun. I'm sure our listeners will enjoy this as much as I have. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced by Yalta Norway for the Nordic Security Conference 2021. Make sure to follow Yalta on Facebook and Instagram in order to keep up with events and publications. And visit our website yalta.no or Facebook to watch the conference if you missed the live stream.